are listening to WHOA Podcast, coming to you from Gainesville, Florida. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the WHOA GMV Podcast, the podcast bringing you businesses and individuals that make you go, whoa. <laughs> do not adjust your headphones. Do not adjust your computer screen. I am your host, Michael Dees, and for one night only... To my left is the most amazing, awesome, blithesome, excellent, fabulous, fantastic, favorable, fortuitous, <gasps> handsome, incredible, ineffable, outstanding, remarkable, spectacular, splendid, stellar, stupendous, super, upbeat, unbelievable, and most wondrous human I've ever met in my entire life. Single-handedly one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time. His voice may not work, but he can still type and his dictionary is still in alphabetical order. My co-host, Colin Austin, how are you doing tonight? I'm fantastic. <laughs> so, Colin legit actually lost his voice, um, uh, I guess, last night. Um, it's, like, it's like so gone, guys. I, I'm like really trying. So <laughs> it's like so terrible. I'm so sorry. I get to I get to run lead here, and he wrote me that fabulous description of it. So mine are never that good. Is it is it weird sitting in that chair? I feel like your height. Yeah. Yeah. Like a pie. Yeah. It is a little weird. It's so but. weird that like I didn't realize that you couldn't really see the guests from right here because it's like all. a Freaky Friday type situation, <laughs> role reversal. Yeah, so I'll uh, like I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best. I apologize to our listening audience <laughs> for my voice. Uh, I'm really trying to make it through this, but my yes, yeah. this is gonna be great. It's gonna I'll be just fine. I'll just whisper my questions and or I'll write them down and you can ask them and we'll we'll, we'll, rock fig- and roll, we'll figure baby. it out. It's it's like rock live. But it's not really live. And I was out last week. You had to do it on your own, so you're a yeah. little under the weather this week. Uh, you know, we may be less than 100 percent physically, but we're 100 percent ready to do this episode. Uh, but before we get started and introduce our guest. Uh, first, for our sponsors, this uh, WHOA GMV podcast episode is brought to you by real estate agent Andy Malden. Andy is a true ACR. If you're not sure what that is, that's an Alachua County resident for you non-locals uh, not familiar with the term. Born and raised in Gainesville, Andy can help you with all your real estate needs, commercial, residential, and land purchases. If you are a first-time home buyer, first-time home seller, and are interested in investing in real estate, give him a shout. Plus, Andy donates $250 of his commission from every transaction of the Food for Kids backpack program enough to feed a child for an entire school year that's so awesome you can call him or text him at 352-262-1047 or dm dm him on instagram at at andy malden realtor spell andy malden andy malden is a-n-d-y-m-a-u-l-d-i-n-r-e-a-l-t-o-r andy malden realtor yeah he's yeah Andy. He's highly ineffable. <laughs> <laughs> you are the man, Andy. I'm holding up a sign. You are the man. <laughs> Thank you so much. You rock. Love you, bro. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. And now we're going to get to our guest. Today on the show, we have Eric Linus Bunt, founder and CEO of Bunt Backline Event Services, a live event production company based here in Gainesville, Florida. Eric, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for being here. You had no idea what you were getting into. Yeah, like, <laughs> I'm did you? You're just like, uh, okay. So in the live events industry, I've learned to just roll with it, man. You just show up and, you know, go with the flow. Yeah, uh, dude, of course. Like, that's, this has got to be commonplace for you. Yeah, yeah. People lose their voices. <laughs> they whisper. It's great. Can, like, can you turn my microphone up just a little bit <laughs> so people little. can actually hear me? So my role could be reversed. I could just say, I need more me over here. I need more me in my monitor, please. <laughs> 
if, the, the amount, uh, the lack of editing that we do almost makes it seem like it's live most of the time. It's not going out live, but there's just not that much touch up. Yeah, no. there's not. Like we don't do most most post production. But so I don't know if you ever listened to an episode. Hopefully you have. But the first thing we'd like to do is get into your origin story. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your company, and uh, what brought you here today. All right on. Um, well, my company is Bunt Backline Event Services. We do sound, lighting, staging, video walls, um, basically anything for like uh, concerts, live events. Um, but then we also do, so we do big concerts, festivals, things like that. That's kind of like the sexy, glamorous stuff that, you know, makes good pictures and all that. But uh, a lot of what we actually do is um, smaller events. We do chamber events, um, you know, small audiovisual stuff, uh, lighting for uh, weddings and different things like that. So it's kind of a wide gambit. And then we um, we also have a couple of venues that we serve where we do, um, we provide all the technicians and equipment in house for those um, places. So that's what we currently do. Um, you said origin story, where mm-hmm. how I got there? Yeah, tell, tell us about you. Take okay. us back to two Take years old. <laughs> Two's a little far, <laughs> but actually, um, as far as like being a business owner, entrepreneur, it goes all the way back to middle school, I think, really, because I was, I was thinking about this not too long ago. Um, I legitimately was making 50 bucks-ish a day slinging blow pops on the bus because um, I would buy them in like the big old cartons, you know? And uh, I think total cost, I was doing all this in like sixth grade. <laughs> so total cost was like five cents each and I was doing 50 cents each. So it was like a Blow 10X markup. Tycoon. It was freaking amazing. How many came in a box? Do you remember? Oh, I think it was a hundred at the ones you would buy at like BJ's or Sam's Club. Okay. Like they were, they were big. They were like the kind you'd use if you were running a snack bar, which I basically was running a snack bar off of the back of the school bus. Um, and I think that was like my first taste of, um, you know, making a little money or that sort of thing. But it, it was honestly like, it was about the, the transaction and like having something that people wanted. Like that was more what it was, but the money was a cool bonus. Um, and then kind of how I got into the industry I'm in now is in high school, I started playing music and it was, it was the nineties. So like grunge and guitar was like huge at its kind of big heyday. And uh, so that was like what I wanted to do was be in bands and uh, mm-hmm. tour around and, and be cool basically. Um, so I started playing guitar and bass and drums. I started playing different instruments and we started bands. Um, and at some point we realized, well, we're like, well, we want to put out a CD, but nobody's going to sign us to a record label. What was this all here? Uh, this was, I went to high school in St. Augustine. Okay. So it was over in St. Augustine. So the band that I was in, the group I was in, um, we decided to start a record label because we could. So we what, looked up. What, what years? Uh, this was, would have been late 90s. So like 98, 2000 range. Um, I was still in high school. And we um, we just decided we found a little recording studio, recorded it, and we figured out how to press our own CDs. So we sent off to some company, and you send your masters, and they <laughs> sent you back a thousand CDs and whatever. And so we had a thousand CDs, which is an egregious number of CDs for a mediocre high school band. Hold on, did you ever do that self copyright thing where you like mail you mail your, a like, copy album to yourself? To yourself yeah, so you could, like prove that it was like. That sealed you, that you own it we i did not then 13 concept back in the right. days <laughs> yeah. i used to for, for everybody's listening i used to be in like a little ska punk band a little i mean they were actually on america's got talent a trumpet so player they did good yeah 
What did you play? Yeah, high school. Uh, mostly played guitar and then bass. And then later I picked up drums and some different things. So kind of a little bit of everything. Um, nothing well. So it was <laughs> definitely like the jack of all trades, master of none as far as music goes. Um, but then, so when we were doing these bands, we started on record labels. So that was a little foray. So basically my entrepreneurial journey was always like, how can I it wasn't even how can I make money? It was like, how can I pay? How can I have the stuff I want to do pay for itself so that I don't have to pull from my actual like side jobs? Cause I would work in restaurants and things like that, even in high school. So that's how I got, that's how we did the record label. We're like, well, nobody's going to do our CD. How can we, you know, we did the math and like figured out, okay, we have to sell this many CDs at this price. And so we started doing that. And then, um, at the same time we were playing shows, uh, with actually shout out to loyal Frisbee band here in Gainesville that would come over to St. Augustine and play with us. And they actually had like a bigger following than we did in our own town. So he'd come over <laughs> and everybody come out. And, um, I started getting paid by, uh, it was Pat Lavery who now owns the high dive and does glory days presents. He would pay me like 20 bucks to bring my terrible broken down sound system, which was like two speakers I bought from a pawn shop that are just, were from like 1972. And this big old mixing board is like three times the size of this, but with only four channels. And it was like wood grain, like faux wood grain on the sides. And it was just all around just hideous equipment. And he paid me like 20 bucks. And I was just like, yeah, I'm making it. <laughs> so I started like the, uh, the band side hustle live. And that was really kind of the beginning of it. Um, but then I took a bunch of detours in life in general. And um, I actually became an elementary school teacher for a while. Um, and at that time, so I think I skipped something. So I was working at the Phillips Center. So I came out of school and I was working. I was trying to be in the events industry. The bands were kind of falling apart. <laughs> I was getting married. So being in bands was kind of dumb at that point for the new phases of life, you know? Right. Um, and so I was working at the Phillips Center and that was actually where the idea for my business came as a real business was um, I became responsible for getting quotes for guys bringing in backline, which the backline refers to the backline of the band. So uh, drum, drums, guitar amps, keyboards, the actual band gear, not the sound systems necessarily or the microphones or speakers, um, but the stuff that band actually plays. And uh, it kind of was this like perfect storm of uh, my wife, we were newly married and she was getting kind of tired of me bringing home all sorts of random equipment and buying stuff off of Craigslist and using basically all of our income to buy random equipment. Um, so it was kind of that happening at the same time. I was actually the person getting quotes for guys coming from Jacksonville and Orlando to come do shows at the Phillips center. And so I was seeing these quotes and I'm going, wait a second, they're getting $1,500 to bring all the stuff that I have in my living room wait a second. It was like the light bulb went off. And again, going back to that, like, wait, it's not about how can I make money? It's how can I support this thing I want to do? Namely like a gear addiction. So <laughs> buying more equipment. So how can I support this? So, um, that was when I started my company it was 2005. And, uh, it was basically an excuse to buy equipment at that point in time. <laughs> so, so I have to ask, what was the name of your band? Uh, we had a band called Rick Darris. Rick Darris. Which is a reference to the Kevin Smith Clerks movie. Okay, sure. Yeah. He and was. What did you name the label? Rick Darris Records. Rick Darris. Okay. Yeah. I figured there would be something good. It was there. very fancy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were very creative with it. Um, but we put out, we ended up, we put out a couple, uh, we put out, I think, two CDs of ours. Uh, then we released a Loyal Frisbee album. And then we released some band out of South Florida called Mind Like Water, and then another one called Kicking Howard, which is a great pop punk band name in my personal opinion, but they're now defunct. Um, so we actually ended up 
over the course of time putting out like you know, three or four other people's stuff. Um, you know, it was, it was never super viable. And then kind of at the same time, like Napster was happening and all that stuff. Mm. So it was like being a record label went from like, Oh, this could be really cool. We could be the next, um, you know, merge records out of Chapel Hill, putting out indie bands to like, okay, record labels aren't really a thing anymore. It kind of happened really fast. Sure. Um, so again, at that point I, I kind of moved in life anyway, from like playing in bands to more doing uh, production and, um, at the, I was at the Performing Arts Center. Um, and at that time, I was also finishing my degree in education. So I kind of had a lot of different at things. UF? Uh, no, no. I was a UF student for about four hours. Okay. Yeah. It's longer than some. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I started at UF. By started at UF, I mean I like got accepted and enrolled. And I went and saw an advisor. And the advisor then sent me like across campus. And then they sent me back across campus. And by about the fifth trip across campus, I finally met with somebody uh, an advisor who then wouldn't really help me with my schedule. And they wanted like, oh, well, you have to take a class at 8 a.m. and then 8 p.m. I'm like, well, when am I going to work? And she's like, huh, well, you should just take out student loans. And that was when I left UF. I was like, that sounds like terrible advice. I'm 22 years old and I know that's bad advice. Bye. And uh, so I finished at St. Leo. I got a degree in education in the evening, so I could still work during the day. Um, and I actually became a teacher for several years. So I think I taught for uh, seven years or so. For those, for those, I played, uh, for those playing the home game, I did not take that advice. Or I mean, I did take that advice. I should have taken yours and just said, <laughs> no, I, I got the student loans and I'm still paying them off. But you know, that's neither here nor there. But. Yeah, I was kind of a brash 22 year old. I wasn't like intentionally an, a jerk or anything, but I definitely told the lady to her face. It was like, that sounds like really bad advice. <laughs> and she was like, well, that's just how you get your degree. And I said, that's not how I'm going to get my degree. I'll see you later. And I left. And I'm super glad I did because I never incurred any student loans or debt doing it that way. And I was able to work. And that was my whole thing with the lady. I was like, I, but, but I'm saying I can work and I'm willing to work and I can, I know that I can do both. So can you help me with my schedule? And it was basically like, are we the highway? I said, highway, see you later. Um, <laughs> so so yeah. these, these light bulbs start going off, right? You're, mm -hmm. You see these agreements happening and you're like, I can do this. Yeah, so. How did you get, my questions are, how did you get wife on board? Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're assuming she's on board. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, all right, how did you get the wife on board? And, um, and then how did you get it launched? How'd you get started? Um, well, so again, I, I already had like some basic stuff. So I had kind of the base of what I needed. And uh, so I actually was very fortunate. My dad was very supportive and uh, I called him up and I told him my idea, kind of just like I told you guys. I was like, I keep seeing these invoices and it's all stuff that I have. And uh, so my dad and I went in, we started the business. He put in 2,500, I put in 2,500 of what I had saved. And we spent that, we just bought a small amount of equipment. Um, he helped me with like the SunBiz filing and stuff like that. He had no experience. My dad wasn't a businessman or anything, but he had time on his hands. So he looked it up and uh, we did it. And um, honestly, I never really thought it would like I wasn't like, I'm starting a business. I'm quitting my job. Like I was finishing my degree in education. I was going to be a teacher and it was a side hustle that I honestly never envisioned becoming any more than a side hustle. And that, and so I would also say that's probably why my wife was on board. Cause she was like, Oh, whatever, at least this stuff is going to pay for itself. And, uh, you know, and you're going to move it to the garage now and not in the living room. So, um, 
Yeah. So I, mean, I think that's so is that what she was. I mean, it was a hobby that was going to pay for itself. Yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of that was the business plan, if you will, was like, oh, this is not a lot of money and not a lot of commitment. I like it. It's a good business plan. Right. <laughs> Especially if you have invoices coming in that you're like, I can do this. Yeah. So, well, that, and that was the first step is I talked to Matt Cox, who's still the director over at the Phillips Center. And I said, hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Um, would you guys be willing to give me a shot at it if, you know, if I start this? I was also transitioning out there because I was getting heavier into my education and I couldn't, you know, um, it's all theater shows and things like that. So most of the shifts are like early morning till late night when they have a show. So I was starting to also scale back what I could do over there. Um, so I was kind of stepping out and I was saying, hey, would you give me a shot at this? And um, I'm very grateful. He said yes. And they started using me. It was mostly small stuff. And uh, we really started with a drum set, a guitar amp, a bass amp, and a keyboard. And that's all we had. So, you know, again, maybe $10,000 worth of nice musical equipment. and. Um, with really no intention of doing much with it. But what we, what I was able to do is at that time, let's say we did a show for a thousand dollars and we brought all that stuff. Um, I would take, cause I had a day job at this point, I would take that whole thousand dollars and I just buy another piece of equipment. And then that basically went on for, I don't know, 2005 till about 2010. Just, I don't think I took a dime out in that period of time. Cause again, it was a hobby. It was a side hustle. I could do it on a Saturday. Um, I didn't have kids yet, so it wasn't that big a deal to like just, you know, also work on the weekend and, and it was just like, you. You had nobody else. It was just me. Um, my dad actually at the time, he's a, he was a musician for years. And, um, so he knows a lot of the gear and stuff. Um, so he would do some of the gigs here and there. Um, so for a long time it was just me. And then actually that was the big, that was like the next big moment for me was, um, I had grown a lot and, and we went from, you know, doing $10,000 a year or something to doing 30 or 40,000 a year. And again, it was a side hustle. So it was kind of around that time. I think it was around 2010 where I was doing my taxes at the end of the year. And I was like, wait a second, I'm teaching. I paid more than I made teaching <laughs> to a couple different guys to go do gigs for me because they were during the week or at times when I couldn't take off from teaching. It's like, wait, this might actually be like a viable thing. Cause if I paid them that much, I could just pay myself that much. And then, you know, I could actually answer my phone and get back to people quickly and send invoices quickly. And, you know, all those things that you're unable to do when you have a day job and it's a side hustle, it's difficult, you know? Um, so kind of at that same time, I transitioned to start, I started getting up like two hours before I had to go to work and I'd send all my stuff off and I started to get really like focused on, Hey, this is viable. I could actually do this. And while I liked teaching and enjoyed it and um, had a great gig teaching, it was like, that's um, just, I was realizing more and more like how passionate I was and how much I wanted to do this. Yeah, like when you're teaching, were you like just constantly thinking about your business? I wouldn't say constantly, but definitely a good portion of it. I would honestly, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately is, I think one of the reasons I've been able to be successful is I don't know if it's a good trade or not, but I've been basically hyper obsessed about it since I started it. So going on 15 years now, it basically occupies the vast majority. So it took over like any place where you'd have hobbies or you like to read or do this or that. Like all of it is focused on my business. Now it happens to be my business I chose is like stuff that I love. So it's, it's also a really fun business. So that helps, you know, so the hobby business combo works really well. Um, but yeah, it was, it's occupied pretty much all of my mind and time. When you stepped into the business, like full time, 
mm-hmm. started doing it, did it really start to accelerate in terms of growth? Oh yeah. 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 So I'm really, and I'm a big proponent of this. Like when people ask me, like when people have side hustles and they're like, Oh, how'd you do it? Like, I know you had a side hustle. So like when do you go all in? Yeah. When do you go all in? And for me again, um, and this just worked for me, my metric was, okay, wait, <laughs> I'm paying, I'm subcontracting enough that I can survive off of. So for me, that was a like, the uh, was the saying the boat wasn't too far from the dock I could jump and make it and so even if I had some problems I would be able to still be okay um, so that that was kind of the metric for me but then as soon as I did that yeah it was like I mean I think we tripled that year we went from doing like you know again maybe 50,000 total in business in a year to almost 200,000 like like that and it was um, I mean I hired uh, hold, on, hold on. So yep. as a side hustle, what'd you do in revenue? Uh, I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to look back. Yeah. I wasn't at the time again, it was a side hustle. So I actually didn't really care, you know, okay. so I didn't really like keep the metric the way I do now that it's like my life and livelihood. Um, but yeah, I mean the last year before I really went all in, it was maybe almost a hundred thousand somewhere in there. Um, you know, with maybe 30% ish profit. So, okay. you know, it was pretty, yeah. Again, we were reinvesting like all of that sure. money. Yeah. Um, but there were, there were good margins, good numbers and all those things. But, um, I was still very cautious and I still, when, again, when I have those conversations with people starting their businesses, I'm always advise that caution as well as like, keep your debts down or non-existent and take your time, keep your day job, so to speak, you know? And, Cause you can always, those day jobs will always be there. You know, you can always go back and get a job if it doesn't work, just don't, you know, get to a point where that leap is not betting the whole farm or, you know, the, the, do- the boat's not too far away from the dock. You know, you can actually make it or you can swim back if you don't, <laughs> so. Reinvesting into the asset seems like a very smart decision too. It's something we've talked a lot about recently. I don't know if in 2005 to, you said for till 2010, that's pretty much what you did is you took any money you made and bought new gear. Like that seems like a very smart way to do it. Especially, uh, I think a lot of people would, would take that money and go blow it somewhere, do something fun with it, so. yeah. Yeah. And I think that was, so just now, so I'm 15 years in just now I'm starting to like go, okay, I need to actually start extracting a little bit right. just for my family and my life. We're going to build a bigger house. I live in a thousand square foot house with one bathroom and I have three boys under the age of 11. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of pee on the floor, but other than that, uh, so we got to get out of that situation. Right. But, uh, all of that to say, um, I've really, I'm still to this day been very conservative in feeding myself versus feeding the business. So I spend, I still spend the vast majority of what we bring in investing in new because we're, the business I'm in is actually very inventory heavy. So for instance, we have video walls. Um, we have 15 cases of this new video wall we got, which does, you know, a, can do two 16 foot giant screens. Uh, well, that video wall alone is $120,000 or something. That's not, small minor investment. And so to do those things, it's, you really have to get to a point where you're comfortable not extracting the money for yourself, but you want to keep seeing it grow. And so when we've added those things in those segments, it's, you know, just vastly grown our business and the amount, um, the types of events we can do, the events we do, um, and given us new opportunities that weren't there before. So those investments are not, 
it's not even just the one for one exchange of, oh, we added LED walls. Now we make this much money off of LED walls. It's no, we added LED walls. Now we have this whole new like clientele and people that would have never considered us before because we couldn't serve that segment. And now we serve all of their business. Um, so that investment continues to pay off and I continue to believe in that and I'll continue to do that. Again, I'm just kind of, I'm hitting the point in a season in life where I'm going, okay, I do need to extract a little bit. I should pay myself a reasonable wage and, you know, as, um, but yeah, it took a long time to get there. So back when you first started, like, how do you, how do you end up getting yourself booked? Is it something you had to like contact the venues and say like, Hey, we're doing this thing. Or are you contacting the acts and saying, Hey, you guys need help with this or do you need gear? Or like, how, how does that start to, so you get traction? I am the world's worst marketer. I think I have everything I've ever done as word of mouth, um, or Google AdWords. So that's, the extent of what we've done just in the last year or two, we've started like, you know, trying to make some content and, um, you know, trying to do some actual marketing, but I've never done actual marketing. I've never cold call a single person. I've maybe cold emailed like five to 10 festivals or people over the years and none of those have ever worked. So I continue to just so not do it. like somebody hitting up the Phillips Center and being like, hey, who does this for you guys? And then they... Yeah, so they refer like is that how you're getting your leads? A lot of it's that and then a lot of it's um you know, it's it's not a huge industry. So a lot of it is, you know, somebody asking so there's bands, we do a lot of oldies bands. So a lot of like the Drifters and Coasters and all these like, you know, 60s and 70s bands um that are playing the retirement home circuit through Central Florida. So Ocala, we have Citrus Hill, the Villages, yeah. So we do a lot of that. And a lot of those bands have the same music director, MD that plays with several bands. So what'll happen is we do a good job. We, you know, they like us, we're easy to work with, those type of things. We defy the stereotype of grumpy sound men. So all of that, and they like us. And then next time they're coming through, a lot of times the promoter will ask the music director like, hey, who'd you use on that last run? You said you liked him, you had a good, you had a bunch of good shows, who'd you use? So it's a lot of that type of stuff. And then um, uh, at this point now too, like we have a couple venues that we're the house production company for. So we have Circle Square Cultural Center in Ocala um, that we do anything Going in house. Going this month for a Beatles cover band. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So it's a nice, it's a 900 seat theater in kind of west side of Ocala out at, on top of the world communities. It's just a retirement community. Um, we've done Kansas and they've had Willie Nelson and all sorts of stuff. So they actually have some big acts that come in there too. And then we, on the other side of Ocala, uh, interestingly enough, we have the Riley Arts Center, mm-hmm. um, which is also about 800 seat. It's a symphony hall. And uh, the way we got in at the Riley Arts Center was um, I was doing some work at UF for UF Theater and um, Tony Oferly, who's uh, the opera, he's opera singing director, I guess. I'm not sure his exact title. Um, great guy. We worked with him on several things. He really liked working with us and uh, liked the way I engineered and mixed sound. Um, so they did the, one of the first shows at the Riley Arts Center and we came in and again, knocked it out. It was a great show, went fantastic. Everyone was raving. Um, and then over the course of like the next few months, they had a couple other people come in and do a terrible job. And then so I started getting the phone calls of like, hey, you did a great job. Why don't you come back? And then that turned in eventually to like, okay, you, your company supplies the consistency of results we want. You're just gonna be our only call. Like if anybody comes in the building, they have to use you. And we never you know, ask for that. We don't send out exclusive contracts. I still believe firmly to this day, 
you should, any of my clients, any of my organizations should be able to fire me like that if they feel that we're not cutting it. I don't at all believe in like holding people contractually obligated to sure. continue to use our services. If, if we suck, fire us. Mm. I truly believe that. Or let me make it right. And then if we don't and we can't consistently perform, fire us. And I firmly believe in that. Um, but we haven't been fired yet. We've been in both venues for a long time. Um, I actually did some of the very first shows in Circle Square um, in 2007 with a buddy of mine who brought me in just to help out. And then he eventually kind of gave up on it and moved on and passed us off to them. And we've been doing it for the last five or six years. That's awesome. Yeah. Can we get back to you uh, telling your wife that you were going to do this full time? <laughs> you, really, you can tell who the married I one is. I feel like Colin's I got, really I feel like he, there's some baggage with this question, no, Colin. No. Uh, actually, I had started my business when my wife was my girlfriend mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's been, Shannon's been Extremely with me. Extremely supportive. Like, every step of the way she's seen every aspect of the company and has been through every trial and tribulation with me right and and Mm -hmm. i attribute so much of my success to her yeah nice eric eric brought the beer with him (laughs) uh i attribute so much of my success to her support uh like literally could not do any of this without her uh but you're already married and you're, and you're teaching, right? And so you like decide to go out on a date and like tell your tell your wife, hey, honey, I'm gonna do this full time now. Like, I'm just really curious how that conversation went. Yeah, well, I mean, she was seeing the success of it as well. And I was increasingly gone on weekends and uh, we did have our youngest son at the time. I mean, sorry, my oldest son now. He was very young at the time. Um, so we had him. So there was like some tension there too about just, like always being gone sort of thing. And you know, I, I can't say I think about it a lot cause I feel like we've resolved a lot of it, but to be real, like at the very beginning, I think it was a little bit of a point of contention. Um, not even just doing it. It's, I didn't include her very much in much at all related to it. And it was never intentional. It was just, again, it was like an obsession for me and it was, I was very much in my own head about it. Did she have any interest in it or did she just let you do your thing or? Uh, well in that way, like I, she's been like the most supportive person in the world because she's very much supported me and let me kind of do whatever. Um, and then I think it's probably a couple years ago now we had a couple of very like difficult real talks about like, Hey, you haven't included me in this. And I would like to be included in some of the decision-making and especially when it comes to time and those type of things. And, um, you know, I definitely looking back did a bad job at that from the get. And, um, and then, you know, we were not married that long. So I think we were also just not, didn't really know how to communicate well. Like she wasn't really telling me that it was upsetting her that I was doing it mostly alone and, and trudging forward. Um, and I was completely oblivious that it was like, so it was kind of a just general bad communication thing. But, um, you know, I think over the last few years and then definitely starting a couple of years ago, we started to really talk about it and, you know, and I apologized a lot for like, you know, Hey, I'm sorry. I didn't never meant to exclude you from it and would love you to be as involved as you want to be. Um, she's not really interested in being involved unless, I mean, I, hopefully I'm not off the mark again, but, um, (laughs) she's not really interested in it. Uh, she has her own business. She does a, a summer camp for kids, master builder camp. And they, um, and so that's kind of her passion and thing. And, um, and I'm trying to do my best to support 
her in that. Um, I say that with some like, eh, because, um, again, it's hard going back to that. I think one of the reasons I was able to be successful uh, is because I've obsessed about it and I'm still obsessed with it. And so, uh, it's almost like, I, I don't know that I know how to help much with a business that I'm not obsessed with. And so that's what I'm navigating now. And also even thinking down the road of like future other businesses that I may want to start with. I'm trying to think about like, how can I, how can I replicate this without it consuming 24 yeah, like seven of replicate my day? The obsession, right? Because like one of the common things that we always, that I always get asked from students when I'm speaking and that kind of thing, we've talked about it plenty of times on the podcast before is like, you know, everybody wants to know how do you find your passion? How do you find that thing that you are obsessed about? Because so many people are, you know, working in a job that they hate or they're just going through the motions of life. And like, I can't even imagine uh, doing that. Like, you know, this is the, this is your one shot, your yeah, one opportunity. Right, exactly. yeah. <laughs> you want to do the thing that doesn't feel like work. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and building something and working on something that's purposeful. And I don't know, I just... It's, it's something that I constantly see and something that I constantly get asked about. So like, what would your advice be on finding that obsession? Oh, my advice on finding the obsession. Oh, uh, keep trying stuff until you figure out what you like. I think there's, I think there's also like, um, I mean, most people know what they like and don't to a degree. Like, you know what you're into, you know what you get excited about. Like, you know, if you're, we're drinking beer here, right? Um, I think I heard your podcast with the, with the, um, first mag first folks mag, yeah. and you know, they were making homebrew all the time and they were obsessed with homebrew cause that's how they partied. Like that's what they enjoyed doing together and those things. And then eventually it was like, Oh, there's a market for this. Um, and I think most of the business owners that I've talked to have kind of been like that. I mean, I doubt you were like obsessed with scooters, but maybe were you obsessed with scooters, Colin? No, it was, <laughs> I tell people all the time that I was obsessed of solving the problem, mm. you know, which was transportation for students. And, and I didn't even realize that I was, you know, obsessed with it until, until I realized that I wasn't meant to work for anybody. And I was going to that career showcase and shaking those hands with the recruiters who were asking me, why do you want to work for our company? And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I don't, like, I don't this is like the worst. Company. This is the worst. I can't even believe I'm here in this like, O-Dome wearing a suit right now. This My life is over. This is terrible. Like I just despised every minute of it. Is that the last time you wore a suit that wasn't a wedding? Uh, or a funeral, I guess. Yeah, probably. Oh, I don't wear suits to weddings <laughs> either, man. No. It's great. One of the best things, I regularly say this, one of the best things about being a business owner, especially in my industry, is I wear basketball shorts to work almost every day. It's fantastic. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so I mean, I just, you know, uh, wanted to really like, I just thought that I could solve this problem, and mm -hmm. and uh, and I think I don't know even how I realized that. I think it was just like the opportunities that I was in a, a business partnership before, and you know, like I met him, and and he was doing something unique with drop shipping, and all these things were starting to really catch my interest. And I was like, man, like maybe entrepreneurship is going to be the thing that I do, and and then like that light bulb moment. I, I think you're right. I think it's just like. Doing what, doing what you love, exploring, 
and kind of like waiting for that light bulb moment to happen, right? Because I had a light bulb moment sitting at that bus stop and having that bus drive by again with those words, full bus across the top. That was a light bulb moment. I was like, oh my gosh, this has happened for four years and I haven't gotten on this bus as many times as I should have, you know? And I tell everybody, I joke around, I'm like, oh my gosh, I used to set my VCR to record Cox Channel 5 where all the business classes were shown on cable television. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, and that's, that's the truth. It's, it's crazy to think that, you know, that moment is like what sent that signal. I was like, dude, this is a problem. Maybe I could fix this. I can't park on campus. I've never been able to park on campus. You know, nobody can park on campus. Like this is a problem. And, and UF continues to build buildings on the only land that they have parking lots. That's going to be a problem. And, and that's what like really set it off. It was like, all right, I think I can fix this problem. Mm-hmm. And so yes. I was becoming slowly obsessed with that problem. I was never obsessed with scooters. I never grew up in a scooter or motorcycle dealership like <laughs> right. a lot of guys, you know, right, like right. it was, it was recognizing the problem, recognizing this opportunity and solving the problem. So it sounds like, like our actual, once we were there, our process was very similar. Like once we honed in on like, I want to do this and then it becomes that like laser focused obsession. So, I mean, I don't. I don't know how to answer the question as far as like how to find your thing, but I feel like if you're like constantly seeking a thing, then keep seeking a thing until it locks in and then go all in on it, you know? And, and again, all in doesn't necessarily mean that I quit my job and that's the only thing I do. Like all in for me was I wake up at 5 a.m. instead of 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. And that was also when a big transition happened for me because I was before I started full time, I said, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I need to like actually sacrifice things for it. And I need to, and in this case, I need to go to bed a little earlier. I'll get up at five. I'll send all my emails. So people will open them in the day. You know, when they get in, in the morning, I'm teaching, I'm already in like third class of the day. And then I'll check my email at lunch. And so I stopped going to the, the gossip center, uh, cafeteria teacher's lounge. That's what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> gossip center. Is more gossip center. <laughs> I stopped going in there cause it was always just a gossip center anyway. And I was like, I'm super not interested in this. And, uh, so I just stay in my classroom and I would just obsessively like email people back quickly, try to get jobs, try to pick up work as like, cause that was the big thing for me. That was a big hurdle was actually like quickly getting back to people just with life and a job and kids and wife. And, um, so that was for me the transition like okay if i'm going to really do this i need to i need to commit more time to it then i can't just think it's going to happen if i like think about it a lot i got to actually put in the extra work so i think a lot of people it's it's not a matter of knowing what their passion is it's believing in themselves or believing in the opportunity and i think you got to a point where the opportunity was too big to pass up you you took the more uh, put your toe in the water you were doing it because you're so passionate about it you found time to supplement what you were already doing and you started seeing those invoices come in that you're like okay no there's a, there's a taste there that i can get and i think that's what happens is a lot of people are they know what they're passionate about but they don't know if they can turn this into a lifestyle. They don't know if they can get to a point where they can quit their job and put all their eggs in that basket. And I think a lot of times maybe they do feel like it's all in or nothing rather than, you know, hey, if you're really into cooking, maybe you take two hours and apprentice at a bakery at 5 a.m. and then go to your job and then get that taste of it. I think that's where people don't maybe tackle it like they do, but it's from a lack of, uh, you know, courage to take that step or lack of faith or lack of belief in the opportunity. It's sometimes it's not finding that passion, but sometimes it's being afraid of what the next step is, you know? 
At least that's what I think. I, I, and I say that kind of introspectively. Sometimes that's, that's the way I feel uh, just through my life path of, of what I choose to tackle and not. It's like, you know, am I just afraid or do I not believe in it? it it's never been a matter of what my passions are. It's just like, where do I go from here, you know? So that's just kind of into the ethos there, but yeah. And I would say like, um, I would have probably launched way sooner had my parents, my dad was a musician in the seventies and he was a professional musician, got paid pretty well, gigged every night of the week. And then, um, it kind of, my sister being born, she's my older sister at the same time, disco became super popular nice. and basically they started firing all live bands. So it went from like, you know, getting paid decently, the musicians union existing, all these things to like, let's just hire a disco DJ. And so I know from a young age, like my dad kind of, and, and I say none of this like begrudgingly, let me put that, make that perfectly clear. But my dad had always kind of instilled in me, like you need the stability of a job. Like, and so he encouraged me uh, to do this and he helped me launch it. And, um, you know, was, has been a partner throughout and has been absolutely fantastic. Um, but there was definitely like, I think he was scared for me um, through that. And my guess is he probably has a lot of that tendency himself, a lot of the entrepreneurial tendency and kind of got it like beat out of him in I, that particular period of time. You know? I think that's just a generational thing. Yeah, like, that as well. You, yeah, you absolutely. Grew, you, he grew up in that, that era. I mean, I've talked about it several times. My dad hates that I talk about it, <laughs> Pro yeah. probably, but like- I guess I'll find out yeah, soon if mine Yeah, does. you know, like my- but, you know, when I told my parents that I wanted to start this business, the answer was no. Mm. I mean, they were like, no, like, you're not, don't, don't do that. You need to have the stable paycheck. Health work, insurance. Work, work that for was a company. One, yeah. yeah. Work for a company that has benefits and, and do all this stuff. And then, you know, later on down the road, if you want to start your own business, then, then go for it, you know, but like, but, but right now, you know, like put that college degree to work and like go work for this, for an organization and have that stability. I can't tell you how many times I was told, uh, do, do what you hate for 10 years. That makes you a lot of money and then go do what you like. Like. Hmm. I think about See, it now, just what, an, what an effed up thing to tell yeah. somebody that's young and, and ready to take on the world. But like, whether it was my parents or dental hygienist or doc, that's what I was told. Hmm. Make a lot of money for 10 years and then go do what you like. Yeah. It should be the opposite. It's like, go do what you like because you have no bills. Right. Like, like, screw around and live out of a van for I mean, a while. Think, think and then, like, it, right? and then mean, you get a real job, you know? Like, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, you know, wasn't married, didn't have children, didn't have a mm -hmm. mortgage. I mean, if you're going to take a risk, uh, you know, I was looking at it as like, if I'm going to take a risk, 21 is, is the age to take a risk. I oh, mean, yeah. if I fail, like, what's I fail, the worst that's going to happen? Like, but at least I, I didn't see myself leaving a stable job with you know, a wife and kids and a mortgage and all these, you know, American dream things to go start a business later on in life. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this now. And, uh, you know, and, and like I said, my dad hates that I tell this story, but like he gave me the biggest motivational speech of my life. And that was, Hey, when you fail in six months, don't come crying to me for money. Mm -hmm. And, and like I, and everybody who knows my dad and like knows that he's my biggest supporter 12 months later, he was like one of our biggest investors in the company. I mean, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like, like he, he has still been such a vital like piece to this organization. Uh, and, and to me as like just a supporter, uh, but, but yeah, like, so if he, I, I, and I needed that. If he didn't Honestly, say I that, would you have started? Exactly. <laughs> if you weren't like, screw I, that, I'm doing it anyway, I dad. I'd love to spend that and say, you know, maybe he knew you better than you think you did. I know. He, he knew exactly, about this a couple he times, knew exactly yeah. what it would get to get you to be successful. I mean, 
I don't think that's the case, but like, <laughs> but it worked. I mean, but but it definitely worked. I mean, and look, like, of course, I wanted to, I wanted to prove him wrong. I wanted to show him that I could do this, and I and I and I've done nothing but work my ass off for 16 years, right? So like, uh, you know, absolutely. And and he's like I said, he's been my biggest supporter and like the a person that I constantly, you know, you know, go to for advice and uh, just you know, ask his opinion on certain things that are happening within, within the business and, you know, other things that are happening in my life. So, so yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I just think that's a super long winded answer to mm-hmm. like, I think it's a generational thing. They just, I agree they grew, with, no, they I totally grew up agree. in that time. That yep. was, that was the way of life, right? Just like mm-hmm. our kids are going to grow up in a technology age. They're, they're used to, you know, five different screens around them at all times. Like it's, it's the, the time of life that you grew up in. And yeah. that was the, the, that time period. I'm sure I've already said a bunch of things to my kids that are probably not, uh, not the best, you know, ways to, to help guide them. But you know, overall the intention is good, you know, and I'm sure, oh, absolutely. and that's like with your dad, the intention was fantastic. No, like he course. cared about you deeply. Of course it was, you know, it just happened to be the wrong advice, but in that particular case, but you know, again, like, I think it's great that you can look at the intention behind it, you know, and I, and that's kind of what I had to finally, like, had to kind of finally realize too, like, okay, I'm teaching. I like kids. Like I like what I'm doing, but I don't get fired up about it the way I get fired up about this other thing. Why am I actually teaching? Like, why am I doing this? I'm doing it because it's like, you know, it's the career, it's the thing you're supposed to do. And in that case, it's not even a very good paying career. So it's like, uh, it's not even, it's not like I'm, uh, you know, uh, in finance or something because I don't want to be and I'm making a pile of money. I'm like, huh, I'm not, I'm doing something I don't even really want to do and I'm making terrible money. So this is like, you know, it's, <laughs> it's the worst of both worlds. <laughs> um, but I actually really did enjoy it. And I did, um, even though like I felt like my last couple of years, my days were numbered. I, I really worked and tried hard to make sure that I was doing it, you know, my, the best I could do um, and do right by my current day job. You know, and, and I think that's the other danger you can get into is like, as you start to, as your side hustle starts to ramp up is like, you start doing it like your side hustle at work and like doing a bad job and, you know, phoning it in at work. And uh, it it was really important to me not to do that. And uh, so I had, that's where I said I had to find those other times to carve out like early morning, lunchtime. So I just had to go, okay, if I really want to do this, every ounce of like downtime or free time, I'm not, you know, doing anything but this. This is my, my hobby, my passion, my joy, all these things. This is what I got to do. All right. So where has that gotten you now? Because now you're 15 years in. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty awesome. It is. So we've, um, how many team members do you have? How big's the company? What kind of projects are you working on? Yeah, we're, um, I think we have 11 full-time employees. So we have, uh, and then another like five part-time that are really probably closer to full-time. And then we have another five to 10 people freelance that we use just for certain larger events. We bring them in for, you know, specialists and different things. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where we're at now. So it's interesting for me because now it's a transition from like being the operator every day to trying to step back and do the, you know, the 30,000 foot view and really, you know, be a leader rather than a manager. And it's super difficult, I will say as well, because like I want to, still have my hands in everything and not for like the typical reasons of like, I don't trust anyone to do it the way I do. I got, I got over that years ago. Um, 
it's just more like, I really like it. Like it's stuff I enjoy doing. So it's hard to let go of it entirely. Does it make you lose the passion at all? Cause you're not in it like setting it up or, um, not as much. I think it's just, I'm trying to find, not find, I'm transitioning the passion to being more like, okay, I've gotten it to this point. It's really doing well. How can I take it from this point to the next step? And so that's kind of cool because it's a whole nother like level of learning mm-hmm. and uh, kind of continuing education, if you will. Sure. I've been just recently started like reading a lot more books on, you know, leadership and all like kind of the classic, like if you looked at the top 50, you know, leadership and business books, just starting to kind of comb through those right, and yeah. get ideas and um, listen to a lot of podcasts and those things. So just trying to figure out like how to be a leader versus a manager and an operator. Um, but then with that, I still, I do very much like to keep my fingers in things. So I have, I have, what I've kind of decided to do is pick like two or three projects a year that are like my baby that I'm personally still involved in as the production manager or audio engineer. Um, so one of you them is- go for the bigger things. Not necessarily. So we last year did this tour for Amazon and TikTok that was really cool. And they had a bunch of like, um, they had Made in Tokyo and Trippy Red and like all these bigger hip hop artists. Um, and it was college campuses, fun, like, you know, five to 10,000 college kids going nuts. And we supplied everything. We took a semi truck around the country for it. It was it was like, that was very refreshing. It was almost like a renewal of like, ah, this is why we do it. When you see like 5,000 people rocking out, you know, um, with all your lights and sound and like, you know, we're making them louder and brighter and all those things. I mean, they're still doing like so cool. the performing, but like, right. you know, it wouldn't be very good if it wasn't super loud and bright, you know? Well, I was on um, Amazon and TikTok. Uh, they were the sponsors on it. So okay. the tour is called Find Your Grind, and it, which is also... It's an organization of some sort. Um, I'm honestly, embarrassingly uneducated on it, considering you just showed up and did your job, right? Yeah. So, (laughs) but no, they're um, stuff with social change, and I don't know. So, um, but they're oh, actually, no, I do know what they do. They're they're trying to encourage kids on college campuses to find their grind, so find the thing that they're passionate about. So, actually, some of the stuff we were just talking about. So, sorry, I forgot that because I'm so focused on the the production side of it. so I was heavily involved in that. That's kind of my baby, which is a big project. And then uh, right now I'm touring with a band called Latitude 28 Band, which is out of Orlando. <laughs> but um, they've been really fun and really gracious and like one of the best clients I've ever had. And we play all these bizarre venues. I'm going to Belize with them this weekend. We're playing a place called the Tipsy Tuna, right, which is like right on the beach. And we're playing um, for, you know, a dance party on the beach. And then... Uh, I go to Amsterdam next week, all week, um, production managing a weird trade show booth. I say weird, just like, it's very like out there technology, very cool stuff. And then uh, I'm going to Suriname to do shows. Uh, they're very popular in Latin America. Uh, we're going to Costa Rica. So we're doing, they're, it's kind of fun because I also really like to travel. So this particular band, I'm getting the opportunity to go a lot of different interesting places that I've never been before. And, um, and I mix them. So I, you know, I do sound for them. A lot of the, when we go far, I usually hire the production locally from places. So I coordinate it and then go in and mix it. And it's kind of fun. Cause I'm kind of like in these situations, I'm on the opposite end. So usually I'm the local company, like hosting the traveling band. And in this case, I'm the traveling artist coming in <laughs> and dealing with the local host. So it's also kind of cool from a meta, um, uh, customer service standpoint of like, oh, okay, this is how it feels. Right. Okay. 
all right. And I'm like making little notes and adjustments of like, oh, this is how we could do better advancing shows with the local company or the out of town person. So even that it's, it's been fun. And then they also, again, they just, they treat me well and feed me well and all those things. So it's really good. It's fun. Cool. So I want to touch back on, on the idea of, uh, being totally hands-on with everything you did to now going into more of a management leadership role, because that's something that, that I did myself. And, and I just want to ask the obvious question, what's been the biggest challenge for that other than not being in the, on the front lines all the time, but just from the, like that growth aspect, like what's been the biggest challenge for you? Mm, I'd say that I'll give you two. One is I still, it feels like a punch in the gut when I get a call Monday morning saying something didn't go well or someone was unhappy. I am super grateful. It almost never happens. Mm -hmm. We get two or three a year tops and out of doing hundreds of events, that's pretty dang good. Like, so I also have to check myself there of like, okay, our track record's amazing. Like we're really good at what we do. This doesn't change that. That's so hard though. Cause you still beat yourself up so much right. over those one or two. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like I got, you know, a hundred five star reviews and two, three star or two, one star reviews. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. you two, one star. <laughs> yeah, reviews. Yeah, yeah. Like, but, um, no, but it's also like the feeling of like, ah, we disappointed somebody or somebody's thing, you know, and sometimes honestly it's jerk customers mm -hmm. and sometimes we screwed up royally. It's, and sometimes it's both. Um, but those are still, I would say those are really hard because, um, I'm not there. You know, and a lot of those situations, not only do I feel like I could diffuse, but I'm like, well, that wouldn't have happened if I was there. However, I've personally been involved in some debacles as well. Like we've had stuff not go well. Again, live industry, live events industry, sometimes stuff just goes sideways very quickly. And sometimes it's your fault. And most of the time it's not, but it looks like your fault either mm -hmm. way. Um, so kind of like being okay with not okay, but like going, okay, deep breath. I'm going to let them unload on me and then we're going to figure out how to deal with it. Um, so that was kind of the biggest one. And then, um, the other one is just, and I don't know why this is, but just like getting out of people's way, mainly Laura, my operations director, who's amazing at her job. She's f absolutely phenomenal. She's helped. Um, I would not be where I am the last two years she's been with us and it's been like exponential in our growth, not, just money wise, but more so like organizationally. And, uh, a lot of times I still very much like it's, um, you know, the organizational equivalent of like interrupting her of like, you know, like, Oh, I know the answer to that. And I'll jump in and it's like, Oh no, I need to actually just allow her to do her job. Cause she's really good at it. And I need to get the hell out of the way. So is that like a micromanaging aspect or is it? Yeah. And I think, and I think if you ask the people who work for me, they would all tell you that I don't micromanage. Um, it's not really like a major trait of mine. I very much have always trusted people like here, I'm going to give you all the information, ask me questions. And I try really hard to actually hold them accountable to that of like, oh, you're saying you didn't have the information. You need to ask me for the information then. Like it's a two way street. I gave you everything I thought you needed. You need to meet me in the middle. Like that's what a manager or an adult does, right? If you think you're missing something, you need something, ask me and I'll give it to you. So I've tried really hard to like set up my organization that way where um, people ask me. It's been more so as I've transitioned from the management, that specific like COO type of job into CEO, if you will, you know, and I don't really, I've never really labeled it that way necessarily organizationally, but like, it's more that transition of like, okay, 
I'm still needed for these things and I still have the most technical knowledge and those type of things, but I need to go ahead and let my operator, my my operations director solve these problems. And usually she honestly has better answers than me anyway, because she also has like the overall view. She knows the whole schedule for the week. She knows because she made it, you know, so she knows what's going on way better than I do. So that's the current challenge is like, okay, let me get out of the way completely and only, I guess, only kind of speak when spoken to as far as like day to day operations go. And so more focusing on steering the ship than holding the the rudder. You know? Sure. That's great. Uh, I know we got to wrap it up soon. Uh, a couple questions we usually like to ask uh, every every episode, kind of Gainesville-centric, but uh, what would you like to see happening here in Gainesville? Is there anything that kind of stands out, what the what the city needs uh, for, for your business, for maybe other uh, small businesses, entrepreneurs here in, in Gainesville? Well, this is, this is not from a selfish standpoint, although it could also be. Um, I would I feel like um, from a live events industry, we are missing kind of the in-between venue. We have a lot of like really small venues and like with the high dive being the biggest of the small venues. So we have a lot of like two, three, 400 people cap venues and places. Um, and then it jumps up to like nothing else. And then you go to the <laughs> Phillips Center, which is 1700 seats and super expensive and you know, not really, not somewhere where you go to see a rock show or a rap show or something anyway. Like, you know, it's not the right venue for that. Or the O-Dome, which is almost entirely unavailable for rentals. With what did the, the, what with did the, the Florida schedule. Theater used to hold, do you know? Uh, around a thousand. That's what we're missing. Is right. Bring back the Florida Theater. Let's go. Well, Bill Bryson, if you you're listening, I'm still interested. No, Bill Bryson, um, who owns uh, Crane Ramen, or he's part owner in that. And then I think he owns one of the other clubs downtown. Great dude. Been fantastic. Uh, he had the covered dish back in the day. Uh, fantastic local music guy. Um, if you're listening, Bill, I'm still interested in helping you with that. Um, but he bought the the old Florida theater. Is it being used? Uh, it is not. I it's just empty. I yeah. So I think the challenge is the building was basically not maintained for a solid 40 years, and it was just in disrepair. And I mean, we I saw fuel in that place. <laughs> we did uh, saw a real big fish uh, a couple there? times. So yeah, in Florida. In, yeah, yeah, in Florida. Yeah, yeah, I did as well. It used to yeah. be a club it may have been the same for show. a while. Like it was a club. we did we um, clubbing when I was in college there. Um, Coheed and Cambria was one of the last shows we did in there. We did production for it. What year? Do you remember? Oh, this was not that long ago. Maybe three, four years ago. Okay. So 2016, 2017. Um, and so over the course of the evening, um, I came across uh, several like very hazardous situations in this building, including at one point, uh, we just, there's a, something in my peripheral vision hits the ground, loud thud next to me and scurries off. A rat oh my God. fell from the ceiling. And if you've ever been in the Florida theater, you know, that ceiling is like 60 feet in the air. Like it would have knocked me out cold if it was yeah. two feet this way, you know, and hit me, but it thud and scurried off. So a rat fell 60 feet from the ceiling. Um, and that wasn't even like the scariest thing that happened in that venue that night. Um, so it was in really bad disrepair. So I'm guessing, I don't know. I don't have any inside track or I hope it's going to be on track. Uh, I know it's a big like money and time thing to get it Cool. So I'm going to go ahead shape. and put all of that work on your yeah. shoulders okay. and ask you, you. ask you to bring back the Florida theater. Well, no, that'd be Bill Bryson, but I'd be <laughs> delighted to help. Him. I expect you and Bill to do this together as a team. Did you call yeah. it the Rick Darius theater? Or what? No, not at all. <laughs> uh, 
No. So hopefully he does bring that back in the next few years. Um, and that, you know, something like that would be really beneficial as far as the event space. So, yeah, for sure. you know, we're, we're just missing that. We can't bring anybody into town. So we're kind of off the map as far as live music goes, you know, for anything decent size. That's a fair point. You got anything else, Wayne? Nope, I do cool. not. Well, thank you so much for being here, Eric. Yeah. We got to wrap it up. Uh, I just want to say, like, I am super sorry to all of our <laughs> listeners, podcast fam. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for letting me still be here through this uh, trial. What are you doing? Did they have like, a choice? To, oh, yeah. <laughs> Did thank they you for have being patient choice? with me. I mean, yeah, if sure, they're still listening, the they definitely yeah. had a choice. So, oh, fair enough. So I think, thank you guys. Definitely, thank you. Uh, You are listening to the WHOA GMV Podcast, the podcast bringing you businesses and individuals that make you go, whoa. Whoa. Give me your best. Sorry, I was like, whoa. There it is. We'll see you next time. Thank you.